decided that he would do something that he kind of does from time to time. Whenever he's reading a book that has really shaped him profoundly, he just says, hey, I wonder if I could find the phone number to whoever wrote this book and have a conversation with him. And so he does that a lot. It's kind of his thing. And one of the people that he called uh, was Mike after he read Drama of Scripture. And about this time, nine years ago, all of us uh, were, were who knew each other, and we were like passing around these books of Drama of Scripture like it was like underground propaganda or something like that. And we were reading it, and it was shaping us in the most profound ways. When we say all of life is all for Jesus, that's shorthand for what we've been learning and being shaped by in the various traditions that have been shaping us uh, over the past several years. And the primary person who's introduced that to us and who's shaped us has been Mike. The good stuff that we have, we usually rip off from him. Um, except the good, you know, there's like good stories and stuff. Like, he, you know, he's, he doesn't know anything about being married to Jenny or Holly or anything like that. But the, the, the stories, but the, the principles, some of the stuff, we're, we're taking it from him. Um, and the other thing that's really cool is he visited us enough times that he said, you know what, I'm moving to Phoenix and I'm going to help get a seminary started and help <laughs> train the pastors here in Phoenix. So you don't know it, but he has affected you in many ways and you don't know it. He hates this sort of like gushing praise stuff. So that's why I'm doing it. So go ahead and give him a hand. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. It is difficult to listen to him introduce me, or it's even more difficult when he asks questions. If you've ever been on the spot and he asks you questions, you know exactly what I'm talking about because he can think the most creative, difficult questions of anybody I know. And I'm glad he, he made you feel warm towards me because now I'm going to talk about a very, very difficult topic a topic I don't like talking about, quite frankly. And I want to introduce it by showing the difficulty of the topic. We've just been through an election. I don't know what you think of what's, what happened in that election, but we've just been through a very surprising election. I remember another election very well. I was living in Boca Raton, Florida at the time. It was 1979, and Jimmy Carter was facing off against Ronald Reagan, and Jimmy Carter was winning substantially with only a two, three months or so to go. And he made this statement. He said, in a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities and our faith in God, too many of us now worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but what one owns. That our nation is at a crossroads. It is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. He raised the same issue in a debate with Ronald Reagan not long I remember Reagan's response as he pulled himself to his full height and said, nobody tells Americans that they have to say enough. Well, the tide turned, and he lost one of the biggest election, one of the biggest landslide victories for Ronald Reagan just a few months later. People don't want to hear this message because it's a difficult one. And often when we hear it and we absorb it as Christians, 
we, do, we find it very difficult to deal with. And Ricardo is the very fortunate one because he gets to bring the good news. He gets to bring my favorite, what I love talking about, and I'm glad he's doing it because he's such a good communicator, and I'm sure he'll have to say a lot of things that I'm going to learn from, but he gets to bring the good news, but I start with the bad news. Let me start with this. Everybody's going to live out of some story, and here's what one woman says, Susan White. She says, if there is one overarching story, meta-narrative means a big story of history that shapes life. If there's one overarching story that purports to explain reality in the late 20th century, and I'd say the early 21st century, it is surely the story of the free market economy. In the beginning of this story is the self-made, self-sufficient human being. At the end of this narrative is the big house, the big car, and the expensive clothes. In the middle is the struggle for success, the greed, the getting and spending in a world which, in which there is no such thing as a free lunch. Most of us have made this so thoroughly our story that we're hardly aware of its influence. Well, the question is, so how did this happen? How did this happen? And the answer is, it didn't just happen. It was designed. And it was the choice, choices made, especially through the 20th century, that moved us to a position in the kind of culture that which we live. And what I want to do over the next 10 to 15 minutes, maybe, is take you through a real, real, real brief history and story to give you some kind of context of where this has come from. I hope I can do justice in it to it in 15 minutes. I want to start in the 18th century, in the enlightenment of the 18th century. There we go. This is, take, this is going to take a while. It was envisioned, this whole consumer culture was envisioned for the first time in the 18th century. Now, in the 18th century, one non-Christian author says that the West lost its faith, which they believed to be Christian, and said, and it gained a new one, a new one that was rooted in humanity and science. And I want to spell out this faith for you very, very quickly. Providence had been the word that spoke of history and that God was controlling history. But now, the word that replaced providence was the word progress, meaning that now human beings were in charge of history. They were the one that was moving history towards a goal. And so what we see in these Enlightenment philosophers, I think I'm going to stop using the PowerPoint, <laughs> and I'll just quote these. What we see in these Enlightenment philosophers are many paradise images. They believe we were moving towards a paradise, a paradise in which human beings would flourish. And you can compare some of these things that they call the city of man with Revelation 21 and the vision that the Bible has of the new earth that is coming. But they believed it was going to be reached, not by the Spirit and by the Gospel and by God's providence, but it was going to be reached by human reason as it discerned the natural laws and translated those natural laws into technology which gave them control over the non-human creation. And then if they could see the 
laws of society in economics and politics and education, etc., what they could do is control those laws as well, and they could build a more rational society, and this rational society would be the paradise that we were looking for. One vision, and one very powerful vision, saw material prosperity as the primary vision for the paradise towards which we were moving. A vision where all people would enjoy many goods. Here's the way one puts it. The person's name is Mercier de la Riviere, a French Enlightenment philosopher in 1767. He says, the greatest happiness possible for us consists in the, consists in the greatest possible abundance of objects suitable for our enjoyment and in the greatest liberty to profit by them. What will make us happy is many goods and the liberty to be able to enjoy them. And one very important philosopher within this time period spelled out a vision that for him was only a dream. For him, he just imagined what could be. But here's the reality. In 1980s, Reagan saw him as the primary person that he was going to follow in terms of economic policy. The man was Adam Smith. And Adam Smith spelled out his vision in this way, that there would be progress towards material prosperity as we used reason to organize the economic and social processes of Western culture. And as we specialized the labor and mechanized it by using technology, what it would produce is more and more goods, and this would lead to economic growth, and then they believed that the rich would have all they needed and it would continue to trickle down until everybody had everything that they needed. This was the vision of a handful, an influential handful of men and women in the 18th century. It was only a dream. But in the 19th century, especially the Industrial Revolution, they began to implement this dream. They began to put it into practice in the Industrial Revolution, especially in England. They mechanized labor, they rationalized the economic processes, and there was tremendous, unparalleled economic growth. In a 30-year period, England's GDP grew by, uh, by uh, 300%. The same time period, Portugal, that did not industrialize, barely grew, and all of a sudden you had the have-nations in Europe and the have-nots at the end of the 19th century. So soon everybody was on board, implementing this envision of Adam Smith in the Industrial Revolution. And what began to happen was they began to produce so many goods that people didn't know what to do with them. Soon shoe factories that used, it used to be people using hand labor to put together shoes, now by using the mechanized labor and people on an assembly line, they could produce so many shoes that shoes were just coming off the end of the assembly line that there were so many shoes that they didn't have enough people to spell, sell them to. And most people would think like this, like almost everybody, I have two pairs of shoes, one to wear on church this Sunday and one to wear for work. Why do I need any more? That's how people thought at that time. And so the quest was, how are we going to... Re there's this gap between production and consumption grew. 
excellent article on this is by Rodney Clapp, a well-known evangelical writer, and he wrote a book, <laughs> and he also wrote an article that if you can find it, you'll love it. It's called The Devil Takes Visa. And here's what he writes. There was a huge gap between production and consumption. How do you close it? You got all these shoes. What are you going to do with them all? How do you close this gap? Industrial production's momentum had already built up, so cutting production was difficult. Manufacturers decided instead to pump up consumption, to increase demand to meet supply. But they realized consumption was a way of life, listen to this, that had to be taught and learned. People didn't naturally think like this. It had to be taught and learned. And so there was a two competing visions at the beginning of the 20th century. There was on the one side, many people, scholars, religious leaders, labor leaders, and the only company that ever implemented this was Kellogg's, cornflakes, Kellogg's. And what they said is, we can now produce so much so quickly, why don't we work less? Why don't we level off consumption, decrease work hours, stabilize the economy to meet our current needs, share work so that everybody can work, and give much more leisure to people so that they can build friendships and build art and do all kinds of other things. Because we don't need to work this many hours anymore because we have so much. And this was argued for by a good majority of the intellectual side of the culture. But on the other side were the manufacturers and the economists, and they argued that what we need to do is pump up consumption and learn to spend more and continue to work more. Well, it's a long story and it's an interesting one, but the manufacturers won out with pressure on Washington. And as that began to happen, it began to develop into a consumer society as they implemented policy. Juliet Schor, a socio, I think she's a social economist, if I'm not mistaken, from Harvard, not a Christian as far as I know, she says, that the social decision to direct industrial innovation toward producing unlimited quantities of goods rather than leisure created the foundation for our modern consumer culture. And she said it was a social decision. We made that decision. We could have made another one and gone in a different direction, but we made it, that we made that decision. And so how is that going to happen? Listen to what Victor Lebeau he wrote this in 1955. That's the year I was born, so you, know, you can figure out how old I am. In 1955, Victor Lebeau, a, an economist, wrote in an economics journal, he lists, and Christians should cringe when they hear this. Our enormously productive economy, he said, demands that we make consumption a way of life. That we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals. Want to see rituals? Look at when a new iPhone comes out. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. If we're going to get people to buy all these goods, we've got to convince them that the deepest meaning of their lives are found in buying. He says, we need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. He wrote this quite openly, 1955. There was a lot of stuff in the industrial journals and the manufacturing journals of the time about how they could do that. And it was, again, very open. 
And the two ways that they said, here's how we can build this kind of society is through planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence. In plans obsolescence, you design stuff to break down or to be unusable more quickly. And every one of you know that. If you bought a coffee pot, or if you are a coffee maker, or if you bought a vacuum cleaner, or you bought anything else that's designed, they openly discussed how long is long enough that the consumer will forget, and how long is too short, well, they'll get angry, but we don't want it too long because we gotta have stuff break down. And they discussed this openly. The other was perceived obsolescence. If we can, they said, instill in the buyer the desire to own something a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than is necessary, we'll get them to buy before they need something. Perceived and planned obsolescence. And so this gap between production and consumption started to be closed as they looked for ways to build this consumer economy. I'm not talking about conspiracy here. I'm talking about social theories, economic theories that are being put into effect. And the language is used in the early 20th century, I kid you not, of the gospel of consumption, of preaching the good news of consumption. It's used by an industrial consultant that wrote an article based on, on, a, on the, I think it's the GM CEO, and he spoke of the gospel of consumption. And how could we do this? How could you, uh, how could you uh, build this perceived obsolescence? Well, it's through advertising. There was about 3,000 ads a day, we're told, that an North, average North American looks at. That was 10 years ago I got that figure. I remember disputing that with my students in the university when I taught there. I said, there's no way. There's no way I see 3,000 ads a day. I think that's baloney. They said, oh, yes, you do. And they started pointing out, I put up ad block on my computer. Every page I go to, about 15 ads are blocked. And if you go to, you know, just add that up, how many pages you go to. I am seeing 3,000 ads a day, and I probably see less than most. And so average North American is exposed to 3,000 ads, and in the discussion of advertising in the books and the journals, there were three things that advertising could do. It could create new desires. I always like to tell this story. One time I was going somewhere on a plane, I can't remember where, to speak on consumerism, and on the way I decided to take the magazine that they had where you could look at all these goods, you know, that you, you can buy on the plane. I mean, some people don't want to be away from consumerism very long. So you can do this on the plane and you can read these things. So I'm reading, I decided that instead of looking at my notes, I would look at every single object and imagine myself buying it. I did it. It took me hours. I got to the place I was going and I felt two things. I felt sick. The second thing is, I found three things I needed. <laughs> three things that I didn't know existed before. I didn't know they existed before, but now I needed them. I didn't buy them, by the way. By creating new desires, making people say, you haven't seen this before, but you're going to need it to live. You didn't know you needed it before, but now you do. The second thing is by creating dissatisfaction. By saying, you look terrible. You want to be attractive to the opposite sex? Use this kind of deodorant. Use this kind of shampoo. Drink this kind of beer and you'll have a great party life just like these people. Create dissatisfaction with people's lives so that they buy into a lifestyle. And that's the third thing, selling the good life. 
I used to have my students in the senior seminar at the university analyze ads and tell me what were the ads saying to them and articulate in propositional content what are they trying to say. And it was a lot of fun. But one of the things they started pointing out is that new more ads today are just trying to put in your mind uh, brands, but they're doing it by mocking sometimes ads. But they're being very effective in mocking themselves in doing exactly what they want to do. But in any case, it's a delightful thing. Take what we used to do with our kids when we had TV for a little while, is I told them you could watch these kids' shows, but I knew, and if you were interested in books on this, there's a lot out there, how most companies target kids under five because they can make the most committed consumer if they can get into their memory and their mind a certain brand by the time they're five. And so I mean, there's a lot out there on this. So I would say to my kids, you can watch Sesame Street, or whatever they're watching, and I knew the ads were going to come on. I said, but at the end of every ad, you've got to say together, who do you think you're kidding? Who do you think you're kidding? And so I remember one time hearing my four-year-old daughter or five-year-old daughter say to my three-year-old son, after he didn't say it, Ben, you got to say it, or Dad will come in here and turn off the TV. Well, I think I, I developed some skeptics in my home, but who do you think you're kidding? Here's what one author says about selling the good life. He says, whoever has the power, listen to this, and think about advertising and the church. Whoever has the power to project a vision of the good life and make it prevail has the most decisive power of all. In its sheer quest to produce and sell goods cheaply in a constantly growing volume and at a higher profit levels, says this author, American business after 1890 acquired such power and has kept it ever since. Oh, that the church would be able to live in such a way that they could project the good life by the way they live and say, life is not found in consumption. It's a good part of creation, and Ricardo will tell you that. But life is not found there. Life is found in it. Project that good life of centered in the kingdom of God. And to be able to say, we can show you the breakdown, and we can show you that the Christian life really shows the meaning and joy and fulfillment of life. I'm going to stop there for my first half. I think I probably went over, so I'm going to have to uh, pay penance in the second part. But I'm going to ask you to take five minutes to discuss this question. What part of this history of consumerism struck you and why? What part of that history struck you? Maybe you didn't know it, maybe you found it odd, maybe you disagreed. What part of that history struck you and why? Take five minutes to talk at your tables. Okay. <clears throat>
going to do in this next 15 minutes or so is offer the first part of a Christian critique, the more negative side, criticizing part, and then Ricardo will complete that critique with the more positive side. And I want to offer a fourfold critique. You might be surprised, but the Christian tradition that has offered the deepest, most profound, and most biblical critique is the Roman Catholic tradition in its social thought. And it's very interesting that Protestants are just catching up in terms of their critique. And so I want to offer a fourfold critique, but I want to begin by speaking of the way that the Old Testament talks about sin. Usually we think of sin as breaking God's law or doing things that are ethically wrong. And we, there's certain, there's, of course, that's true. But the primary way that the Old Testament speaks of sin is with the imagery of idolatry. So much so that John Calvin could say that the human heart manufactures idols. That's the very way that we live. And the idea of idolatry in the Old Testament, this is important, is not the idea of individual idolatry, that each individual has his or her own idols, but rather the notion of cultural idolatry. That is that we live in a community and that as a community, we together pursue a certain vision of the good life. In other words, we take, this is what idolatry is, we take one good part of creation, we make that the goal of human life, and then we begin to organize our society around reaching that goal. That's what cultural idolatry is. And that's the primary way the Old Testament speaks about sin, I would argue. And in light of that, then, consumer society means ordering a society and a culture on the basis of economic growth to meet the chief end of human life, which is a desire for consumer goods and experiences. My favorite social analyst, Christian, Bob Chaudsvard, says... Every style of culture is in turn related to the religious question of how people view the ultimate meaning of their life and society. They have a vision of what the good life is, and that good life then begins to shape the way they organize their society, their education, their law system, their politics, their economics, their sports, etc., their leisure. And it's interesting to note, I didn't know this until I accidentally picked up a book in a, in a second-hand bookstore for about 15 cents. It was such an old book. And I picked it up and I was intrigued by it because it said it was all the catechisms that had been written. If you don't know what catechism is, don't worry about it. You're not missing much. But the catechism is questions and answers that used to be used to train children theologically. And what they were pointing out was one of the primary questions in all traditions was something like this. This is the Westminster, the Presbyterian Catechism says, what is the chief end of human life? That was how Calvin started his catechism. What is the chief end of human life? And Calvin's answer was to know God and to serve him forever. The, 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 the uh, Westminster Catechism's answer was to love God and glorify him forever. In other words, these answers offered, this is the chief end of man, this is what's worth pursuing, and everything else has to be taken into that goal. 
Well, one way of answering this question, and I don't think it answers the whole thing, but one way of answering what is the chief end of, West, of human life in Western culture is economic growth, material prosperity, and the consumption of goods, and even more so for the younger generation, experiences. That this is, this is what will truly make us happy. Stephen Miles, in his book on consumerism, says that consumerism appears to have become part and parcel of the very fabric of modern life. And, and he says it along with many others, and the parallel with religion is not an accidental one. Consumerism, he argues, is arguably the religion of the late 20th century. I would argue the 21st. One artist pictures it this way. It's the title of this, he's a, uh, he's a Canadian artist, but he's called The Cathedrals of Commerce. And you always understand his art. It's fantastic art. Look up this guy's name. Boy, good art. All, you always have to read it by going left or right. And here you're moving to the uh, uh, from the right to the left, and you're moving from the cathedral, the commerce buildings, into religious cathedrals. And his message is that economics has become the new religion of Western culture. Here's what T.S. Eliot said in 1946, and that was before I was born, so that's ancient history. And T.S. Eliot writing, the idea of a Christian society says this, the problem, this is 46. Now think about that, 60, right? 60 years ago, am I right? Or uh, 70 years ago. Here's what he says. The problem of leading a Christian life in a non-Christian society is now very present to us. He says, it's not merely the problem of being a minority in a society of individuals holding an alien belief. It's not that we're just a minority and believe something different than the rest. It's much deeper than that, he says. It is the problem constituted by our implication in a network of institutions from which we cannot dissociate ourselves. We are part of a political and economic and educational, etc., system, and if the whole, that whole system is built around a false goal for human life, we are part of that system. And he says, that, he says here's the problem. He says, in, these institutions are no longer neutral, but non-Christian. And here's the sad thing. He says, and as for the average Christian, he or she is not conscious of this problem. And therefore, that, that he says, and they're in the majority. Christians who don't even know this are in the majority. And they are becoming more and more de-Christianized by all kinds of unconscious pressures that they're unaware of. And this is a deep, deep hitting critique. He's saying we're caught up in this, we're associating this certain network of beliefs and institutions and we're being more and more shaped because we're unaware of the shaping power of those institutions and the idolatry that shapes most of them. We've been fooled by the modern scientific worldview that says we've just got a modern, rational, neutral society because we're secular, and we don't realize how deeply religious it is. And so the fourfold critique that I would want to offer in this regard, and I'm going to go through it quick, and every one of these would take a long time. The first is this. There is excessive consumption by some while others suffer want. Almost everybody makes this critique. There's a growing gap between rich and poor, 
and less and less people can enjoy more and more. And so the critique is being made that this, I could give you all kinds of statistics, but I'm sure you're aware of them. Strong critique. The second one, and this critique is well known as well, that excessive consumption threatens the environment. That we are putting so much garbage. I heard that over 90% of what you bought within six months ago is now in the garbage. That's an average. Over 90% of what we buy six months later is in the garbage. And so we are filling landfill sites. I'm embar I was embarrassed a few months ago to be Canadian. Um, I'm actually a dual citizen, but um, I was embarrassed to be Canadian. Other times I'll be embarrassed to be American. But right now I'll be embarrassed to be Canadian. What happened was we filled this enormous barge, enormous barge of, with garbage. And we paid a company in the Philippines to take our garbage and get rid of it. It was just literally massive tons of garbage. This goes on all the time. It was sent across the ocean. By the time it got there, that company went out of business. The, the people from the Philippines says, we don't want your garbage, take it back. The government said, we already paid to have it taken there. The government said, yeah, but they're out of business, take it back. Canadian said, we already paid, you keep it. And it was a standoff for a little while. I don't know who won. But the point is that this is happening. We're producing so much garbage. And here we are in Canada with more land mass than anywhere else in the world except one country. And we're not willing to put it in our land. And so there is, we're producing a lot of garbage and it's threatening the environment. Now those are two very, very common critiques that you'll see everywhere. But these next two are two that I had not heard before before I started studying it, and they're both very profound. The one is this. For some persons, consumption has been the primary goal of their life, and it is to the detriment of their own well-being. In other words, what they're saying is that it's not only hurting the poor, it's hurting the rich as well. It's hurting those whose lives are caught up with this, I have read a lot on this, and I just want to really summarize some of this stuff quickly. Here's some of the things that's being written. It's producing a chronic lack of time for family, friends, prayer, leisure, exercise, volunteer activities. Let's talk a lot of talking about what this is doing for our time, and I'd like to quote some of those, but I'm just going to quote one. It's a book called The Harried Class, if you're interested. And a guy named Stefan Linder argues this. He says that houses used to be so big and now they're twice that size, and we fill them with goods, and he says every single item we buy is going to take up a certain amount of our time. So every item of clothing will have to be washed, ironed, put away. Every mechanical item we have, we have to maintain it. The bigger the... Uh, rugs, more we have to vacuum. And he starts to put time value on each one of things that we own. And then he says, you wonder why we're losing time? He says, start adding up the time that it takes to take care of our stuff. And his argument is, this is killing our marriages. It's and he doesn't argue this, but I would argue it's killing our prayer time. It's killing our exercise. And so that's another critique that's made by a doctor. His argument is, in, in one book, that the growing physical problems that people are having are often tied to how many goods they have, and because they can't, don't have any time for exercise, as well as of a, a number of other things that he argues, he says that the patient's unhealth is a direct result of the pressures of modern society in what he calls possession overload. Very convincing book. 
Another person talks about the cost of the service sectors. In other words, what happens is, as businesses continue to make a profit, they continue to raise salaries. And as they continue to do that, guess what? Over here, the service sectors, we're talking about education, medicine, and they can't make a profit, but because they need skilled people, they got to keep their salaries going along with the business people. And what's happening is we're paying more and more for education and more and more for health care. And so the service sectors have to keep up when economics leads the way. Another critique is the debt and anxiety that this is causing. Another is, and I, I just, I'm going to list these because I can't talk about them, that distort so many areas of life that we don't even realize it. I'm talking about marriage, family. One big interest for me, and I know it's for Ricardo as well, we've talked a lot about it, is I love sports. That was the, th my, the thing I lived for as my God. And I've done a lot of, I've done some writing and a lot of lecturing on sports, and I started realizing, because I'm old enough to see how globalization, economic globalization is impacting sports and what it's doing to it. It's a very different thing today than it was even back in the 60s when I first started watching hockey and baseball. It's impacting all kinds of areas of life, and I say mostly detrimentally, but not only. But also, worship, I mean, the consumer society has so deeply shaped our worship and our churches, what the church understands itself to be, that is a purveyor a, of goods, of religious goods and services for the consumer that comes to enjoy them. In other words, it's impacting more and more and more of our life, so that even things like marriage becomes a matter of my wife is serving me well, and I'll keep her. But if she stops meeting my needs, then I'll just get rid of her and find someone else. And so the idea is that it begins to, the consumer society, if it becomes the goal of life, begins to impact more and more of life. But one of the interesting things where there's a, bur a, a, a burgeoning of studies is in psychology. Here's what three psychologists write. Many studies show that the materialism, or consumerism, the pursuit of money and possession seems to breed not happiness, but dissatisfaction, depression, anxiety, anger, isolation, alienation. In short, the more materialistic people are, the poorer their quality of life. And there, there's a number of social psychologists that study what's called the, happy, uh, the, the, the happiness index. Have you heard of that? Where they judge how people are happy, and they said, interestingly, the biggest economic growth spurt from the end of the Second World War today, you can see that every year, happiness in Western culture goes down. And so it doesn't make people happy. The last critique, and this isn't, I would have never thought of this, but I want to invite you to think about it much more than I can say, and that is this, the notion of ungodly character. And what it's saying here is more than a consumer society creates ungodly character. It's saying that, but it's saying even more than that. What it is saying is that this kind of God, ungodly character is needed for the consumer society to even exist. Let me give some examples. There's a need for insatiability and greed versus contentment. There's the need for instant gratification versus patience and self-control. There's a need for dissatisfaction versus joy, thankfulness, stewardship. There's the need for individual autonomy and self-fulfillment. Nobody will tell me what to do. Versus mutuality and community. There's a need for selfishness, self-centeredness, narcissism, entitlement. Boy, I realize how much I, that infects you as soon as you start saying, I paid for that. 
versus the selfless and sacrificial service of Christ. The surface image that sells versus the authenticity of deep character. Wasteful versus being stewardly. There's a book that I have, I keep being asked for my people in our cohort because I've quoted it enough times and I can't remember the exact statistics I wish I could have it for you I wish I had my library and I could just pull it off but the book argues this with a host of statistics if just evangelical Christians in the United States were content that one thing through period of December leading up to Christmas this is not a good thing but it's the reality the economy the world economy would begin to collapse the majority of the world economy is based on what Americans spend in December. The majority. I forget the numbers, like they're very high. And so it's needed for this society to continue. So I believe that this is the negative critical side. And I hate having to stop here. I want to talk about the good news and the delight and the joy. Right now, I wish I was Ricardo. A lot of times I wish I was Ricardo, but this time I wish I was Ricardo so I could talk about this. But I'm going to leave you there with that negative critique, and please know that I would love to give you the good news. And I'd like you to talk about this question um, and while Ricardo comes up here. What critiques do you think of those critiques that were made um, are the strongest? What critiques really stood out to you that are the strongest, and what grabs you? Tell and talk about why those critiques you felt were strong. Thank you for patiently listening to the bad news.
All right, you guys got about 30 seconds. Go ahead and wrap up your, your answers. All right. Hey, um, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, you guys know this deal. I'm just joking. <laughs> All right, so I got, I got about 12 minutes to be able to do my particular piece on stuff. So when it comes to just stuff and be able to consume, uh, as Mike said, that, that, uh, that I, you know, I get a chance to see all the good stuff, hopefully we'll see. Um, culture and being able to consume culture in a very healthy way um, is a good thing. All of us, we come into this world consuming something. And so whatever it is that you have that you consume is stuff that you're into. So I think about even when it comes to my conversion story and this long period of time that God used to draw me to himself, part of it came through what I used to listen to. Um, I love hip-hop. I love everything that was made from 1990 all the way to 2000, right? Anything before that is good. Anything after that just kind of went downhill, right? And so, so there, 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 was two, there was two songs, one particular rapper that made me think about things as it relates to stuff. Kanye West. Now, before you guys even think what you know about Kanye, right, uh, this, was, this was like pre-Kanye Kanye. This was when he was just Kanye, right? And so he actually featured on a CD that was made by Dilated Peoples, uh, and it was called This Way. And in this song, here I am, I'm probably a sophomore, junior in college, not walking with the Lord. And he says, and the whole song in itself is, I can't live this way, I can't live this way. And he's got this line where he says, my favorite girl want to leave me because she found out I got a girlfriend. My free girl told me now she's a Christian. My white girl want to move back to Michigan, right? And he goes, oh, all right, I'm pulling girls off the bench like a six, man, right? So good, it's a good song. And the whole thing is I can't keep living this way. And the image that it has, it shows people running from bills that they have right, that are chasing them, and at this particular time, me and my boys are spending most of our time using our credit cards, buying Jordans, buying things, and so forth, because we wanted to be like Kanye, right, and so that, that was one song, and then Kanye came out with his album, College Dropout, which arguably one of the best rap albums that came out. Um, in that particular, um, that's one of, one of his main songs, one of his feature songs, he talks about consumerism. Now, he doesn't say consumerism. And, and what he says is he's talking about the culture, and he says, I'm not going to even totally, ap totally up and out. I mean, I'm not going to act like I'm not like everybody else. He goes, I went to Jacob's with 25000 like Jacob the Jewelry, with $25,000. You know, before I bought a house, and he goes, and I'll do it again because I want to be on 106 and Park pushing the bins. I want to act all horrific like it's all terrific. I got a couple past due bills. I won't get specific. He says, I got a problem with spending before I get it, Right. We all subconsciously, I'm just the first to admit it. I remember going, wow, somebody's rapping about truth. And like that, those were the genesis moments of me thinking about, man, I can't live my life this way. Here's a man on TV talking about he's self-conscious. I go to my closet. I got a lot of shoes. And then excuse my French, but in that language at that time, I would have said I got hella shoes and hella hats. This thing all goes together. Just stuff, stuff, stuff. And then I came to know Jesus. And I just took the pendulum and just swung as fast as I could to the other way. I got rid of all those shoes. I got rid of all those hats. I moved into an apartment. Um, I got rid of a bed. I got rid of dresser. I had Tupperware stuff that I would put my clothes in. I had very, very few shirts that I had. I mean, I essentially had nothing to the point where I even I had a car. I started walking to work when I was teaching at this high school two miles each way in the snow, uphill, right? <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm doing all of that, and, not, and, and I'm miserable. I'm miserable. 
and there was no joy. And then anybody else in my life, especially anyone that was walking with Christ, that I would see with certain things. They'd come to church, excuse me, they'd come to school the next day, some of our teachers that were believers, and they'd have different shoes and different slacks. I'm like, how many shoes do you need? Do you know what kids are doing in Africa right now? You got to realize, too, this is 2005. This was an invisible children is like blowing up. Like, do you understand what's happening? And, and if anything, my guilt in not understanding where I was with this whole ideal of stuff um, just led me from one side of the pendulum to the other, but I never really found a whole lot of joy in it. Um, and so Mike's point was to be able to show you guys why are we where we are? Like, why do we do the things we do? And if we had weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, he can continue to share with you over and over and over again about why we do the things we do. Most of us who think we're creative, most of us say, I don't even care. There is something that is shaping us in such a way that we're wearing the things that we're wearing, that we're doing the things we're doing, the car that we get into, the bike that we ride home. That's a, it's shaped by something. So how do we enjoy this stuff? And so my title tonight is, is essentially Coffee, Architecture, and Tackling, which absolutely maybe has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about, but those two thing, three things were on my mind this morning. So the first, the first thing is coffee. So here's a picture here um, of Street Bean Coffee. Now, Street Bean is my favorite coffee place. It's in Seattle, Washington. And Street Bean in itself was started um, by an organization called New Horizons who, who since 19, I believe, 78, has, has uh, been seeking to care for, the ho for homeless teenagers in Seattle. And I had a class in uh, Seattle when I, when I was getting my master's, and my professor took us to this coffee place. Up until this moment, I was buying coffee at particular coffee places. I didn't care. Mind you, when I first became a Christian, I realized what Christian crack was. Coffee, right? And so... <laughs> I didn't really drink coffee, however, I started drinking some, 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 some drinks, right? Coffee drinks. And um, when I took this class, I was able to see the process of a bean. What I mean by this is, this organization was set up in such a way to uh, compete against other organizations in Seattle, and Seattle is like Mecca for coffee in, in our country, and not only just compete, but have really good coffee, and not just really good coffee, but they were going to hire these kids off the street who could not find jobs because many of them had felonies. They'd have felonies for prostitution or selling drugs or whatnot, and they would hire them and teach them how to be good at what they did in order that they may be able to find other jobs down the road because they would have a resume and something on a resume. And so our professor brought in the main man to talk about coffee and explain coffee in the world and how even though we have so many coffee places in um, the United States, we're not even close to Europe. And he began to talk about this bean and the integrity of the bean, and, and he showed pictures of the people who own the farms where these beans come from. He showed them how they're protecting their farms, and he showed the process of how to have an honest bean and how it, care it matters the quality of machine that was made, and it, whether it was an espresso machine or if you, if you were having a latte, or even if you were having something like chai, how it mattered and ultimately taught us how to taste it and so forth. So when people tell me sometimes, you're a coffee snob, I said, no, this actually came from me sitting with someone who cared so desperately about the poor in his own city and about the poor in another city across the world um, and how to enjoy a good coffee. It's not necessarily snob, it's something that somebody sees the idea of God creates things, and God says it's good. And if we're going to be people who bear his image when we create things, we should look and say it's good. 
when we prepare things, we should look and say it's good. God didn't create things and go, and the spirit was like, hey, the father, how's it going? And Jesus was like, it's average, dog, at best, right? <laughs> Never, right? He says it's good. It's good. And the thing about, about, about things and stuff, it's not that it's bad, and it's not that it's even neutral, which what I used to believe. At best, it's neutral. No, he says it's good. They got it over and over and over again, just in case we don't understand. He says, it's good, and so coffee matters. It matters. The other thing is architecture. I love space, and I love being able to look at things. I love to be able to look at designs. And so here's just a picture that I found. Uh, this is early today. I was taking pictures, and I took a picture with my phone, and I took this. No, I'm sorry. I found this, right? I, I found this in architecture. So one of my favorite architects is also a dear friend, Jack DeBartolo, here in the valley, is a part of Redemption, Gilbert. He has this quote here. If we can put that quote up there for me. He says, knowing that creativity is a gift from God, not only should we be the creators and curators of culture, we must endorse, support, fund, attend, and encourage all forms of culture in our communities. That's, that's a, one of the buildings that Zach, or Jack helped remodel and design. It's actually um, Redemption Arcadia. This is very beautiful. And you might ask yourself, how come he hasn't done that to Tempe? Insufficient funds. <laughs> so so, so there, there's that. And the last one is just tackling because I love sports. And, and, and the, the next picture here is a picture. Um, I tried to find a picture. Oh, you can go back to that picture. So that's my oldest son on the right. And then that's his best friend, Roy. And that's at Sun Devil Stadium. They got a chance to play their, uh, their championship game in there. And it was a blast. And I tried to find a picture of that, that kid on the left. His dad is one of my, probably my best friend, Roy, uh, and we both roommate together in college and got a chance to play in that field, and both, both of our boys played there. They have no idea what they're doing, uh, but it was fun, and it was just good stuff. It's good stuff. So if God says it's good, how do we, how do we enjoy things that are good? How, are we, are we, how ought we to live in these things? And so I have a few things that I want to be able to share with you guys um, first, just to let you know, a lot of these things do come from my uh, understanding and sitting underneath and, uh, Professor Goheen, Mike, as he calls us at times, he wants us to call him. And, um, and so interesting enough, when the student is here after the teacher, some of the quotes that he used, I was going to use as well. And uh, so I'm going to either use them again or just make some other ones up. Um, this first... This first one here is consumption. When it comes to consumption, how do we, how do we even have a good biblical understanding as, as followers of Christ of consumption? It says this, delight and enjoyment of God's good creation. That we just delight and enjoy that God created something. That when you wake up in the morning, if you're a coffee drinker and you smell that coffee, right, it might mean something to you too. It might mean it's time to get crack open my Bible. I'm behind, but I'm going to jump in in the True Story Project, right? Go ahead and skip ahead. <laughs> so there, there's this enjoyment of whatever you have, enjoyment of family and of friends and of laughter. There's enjoyment because God created us ultimately to worship him, but he's given us stuff. And this stuff, when brought under the lordship of Christ, we could use to worship and enjoy. Next thing it says is that the father has showered his children with innumerable gifts. You know, James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the father above. When you run, those of you guys who are runners, crazy, but those of you guys who are runners, that you enjoy it, that even the things that you, you the fact that you can, you open up your laptop and that you can immediately access so much information, that it's something to be enjoyed. These are numerous of gifts 
I, I remember the first time I heard someone pray over a meal and I was convicted. Uh, once again, I was in Seattle. A lot of good things happen for me when I'm in Seattle. I was sitting down, and at the time, my wife and I were thinking about uh, um, going to go work for a church in Seattle. This was a long time ago. I'm not, I know I was just there a couple weeks ago. I promise you that's, I'm here. Um, and we sat down, and this guy was praying for his food. They were at this restaurant, and he prayed something like, Lord, I thank you for the hands that made this. I've heard that prayer before, okay? And then he says, and the creativity that it took to put all this together, the people who grew it and their hands, and their families. Sustain them, Father. And he went on and on. And, and by the time he was done, I am, I am notorious for eating very fast. I wanted to eat that so slow because I'm like, every time I take a bite in this, he's right. Somebody's family's being sustained as I'm ultimately eating this food. There was a sense of going, we don't just pray before we eat. We give thanks to God, who's a good father, who's given us many gifts. And the amount of people that, that it took to make this beautiful meal on my, on my plate. But there was thanksgiving of the innumerable gifts that our Father has given us. This next one, consecrated consumption, which is pretty easy. And it's, that, it's from Rabbi Blanchard. And I first heard about it in an article in Christianity Today in 1996, written by a man by the name of Rodney Clapp, with Mike. Mike already uh, talked to you guys about him in that, in that, that, that um, article, that Why the Devil Takes Visa. Um, and this this whole idea of having this Jewish concept of like consumption being consecrated, the things that we eat, that it's okay to know that we have to eat to live, that we have to drink. I know there's at least one person in here that I just found out that is pregnant. Congratulations. There's, now you're eating for two, and that's a good thing. And I found out they were pregnant because they actually had to tell me. Go figure, right? Because I don't have social media. <laughs> actually telling the people you love what's happening in your life. <laughs> there's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually thought about, never mind, I got a time limit here. So, so those, 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 those consecrated consumption. Okay, so when it, I got four things for us, and, and I'm going to race through these, and we're going to have Q&A. So hope you guys have your questions that we could be able to talk about some things. So what are four postures that we, we can have as, as followers, as people? And if you're not a Christian in this room, this is still four postures in which you can have when it, come to, when it comes to the things in which we can touch, taste, see, and smell, and so forth. The first one here um, is gratitude. There's gratitude here. And there's a scripture that I have here before we go back to the, to the text here. It says, now, the spirit, this is from Timothy, um, the, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, right? And so you're like, okay, demons, right? Get ready. And if you're thinking about demons, you're thinking about, you know, the exorcist, Friday the 13th, the ring, all these scary movies, right? And it says, through the, in, the insincerity of liars, who, whose consciousness are seared, and here's the demonic teaching. They forbid marriage and the require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe they know the truth. For everything, God, that everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Think about that. There's demonic teaching going on. Timothy, Timothy's like, give it to me, Paul, what is it? People are actually saying things that we shouldn't enjoy sexual relationships and food. Oh, that's demonic, right? Like that's, like that's how serious Paul was saying. These things were created by God and to be received with thanksgiving. And so there's gratitude. There's gratitude. So when Holly and I first got married, first, <laughs> we've only been married once. <laughs> um, when we got married, we, we were able to buy um, a townhome, right? 
And my family came in town, and, you know, they, my nephews are living with my sister at the time in the same apartment that I grew up in. And my nephews come in the house, and they're like 10 or 11. They're like, dang, uncle, you got stairs inside your house. They're on the inside. And I knew what they were thinking, like, our stairs are on the outside. And I felt so guilty again. That same feeling of like, man, I know I'm in a position where my family's not at. Like, people who I know, they're not at. And it wasn't like my mom and my sister's living in poverty or anything like that. She's actually doing really well for herself and raising two boys on her own. She's strong, and she does things fierce, right? <laughs> and so there's, there's, but there was this sense where I was, I, there was guilt there. And guilt is actually something that makes you turn in on yourself. It doesn't get you anywhere when it turns for others. But when there's deep gratitude for that food that you eat, the water that you drink, the chair that you're sitting in, the friendships that you have, the breath that you just took, that common grace that the Lord bestows upon the, the, the just and the unjust, that that gratitude will inevitably flow into generosity. It will inevitably flow into generosity. It will inevitably flow into generosity. <laughs> Gotta say it three times. And, and in generosity, we can share. Think about this. The most simple, basic thing that we teach our children is to share. There's all of these goods you have. It's just share. Take what you have and give it to somebody else. Like, just understand that if I'm so thankful for this, think about the things you're thankful for, right? Those of you guys who have family in the room, those of you guys who have social media, your kid does something, you're so thankful and happy of it. What do you do? You post it. You share it with people. You, share, you try to share your experience with other people. And that's not a bad thing. So what about the stuff that you have? Would you be willing to share it with people? I mean, would you do what the church did when it started? Like when we begin, we're going to teach through Acts in January, and there's this famous, famous passage where they acted as if everything they had was each other's. And there's always usually a capitalistic mindset that goes, wait, are you talking socialism? No, we're talking being Christian, right? Like something as simple as that, that I'm so thankful for what God has given me, that I have so much, or at least enough, or I would go for a little bit, take one bite, that I may have another bite with you. And so there's generosity there. It's the next text here. It says this, for who sees anything different in you? And Paul's talking, and he says, what do, you what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? And that's the whole idea of understanding when there's gratitude that leads to generosity, you understand the privileges that you have. That did you work hard for it? Absolutely. But you worked hard with what God has given you. Like when I look at my situation, I look at my brother, my sister, myself, I am in a situation from the world standpoint that I'm further ahead than them. I got, a, I got more degrees than they have. Um, and, and, I mean, I'm married, and, and my, my kids are in a two-parent uh, household, like all of these things. And I can say, it's because I worked harder than them. But is that true? We're raised in the same household, the same struggles, same everything. The difference is, ultimately, God's grace did something in my life that was uniquely different than my brother and my sister. And he's starting to spill that same grace in their lives. I could never look down my shoulder upon them and say, well, this is my own hard work. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And even if I did, who gave me those bootstraps, right? Paul's pointing, like, these gifts, they come from the Lord. And so there's gratitude, there's generosity. And this next one, verse from Timothy, go to the, verse, the next verse from Timothy. Is, it says this, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. And another phrase, a word for content, could just be content would be enough. And the reason why I don't like using content 
is in our culture, in our, in our context, in our church, a lot of people, a lot of you guys are single, a lot of, usually content, usually is taught with, God going to bring you a man, you, until you are content, then he'll, and it's like, all right, now we're only thinking relationships, right? I don't think Timothy was thinking about your husband or your future wife or anything. He was talking about stuff. And there's a way to just have enough. And I don't know why I picked that photo. I mean, because who doesn't, I mean, all you need is a little wad of cash, a lighter. You never know. It's stressful out here. <laughs> Stress, stressful. <laughs> just a little something, a little heater. Uh, so so you, there's, there's enough. We got, and here's the deal. You live below your means. And I don't know everybody's means here. But wherever you are, live below that. And if it's here, live below that. If it's here, live below that. I can't tell you what a Christian should drive or not drive, wear or not wear, how many shoes you should have. No, because I don't want to get into legalism. We want to have our hearts be so filled with the gratitude that spills itself on the generosity. And when you're giving it away, you realize it is better to give than it is to receive. And you realize, I have enough. I have enough. Like, I, I, I have more than enough. And so I'm going to start giving again. I'm so thankful. Gosh, I have so much. I'm thankful for this. I'm not going to complain about this because I have enough. And then lastly, there's stewardship. And stewardship is something that usually is only talked about when it comes to giving to churches, but a stewardship is a way of life of what it looks like for us to actually care for what God has given us, to care about the material world that God has given us, to care about the things that God has given us, to keep up and to maintain and so forth the things that God has given us in order that we might be able to enjoy him most fully. And all of these things, when they're done, under the lordship of Christ, responding to the good news of Jesus, when we respond to those things and we thank God, we're worshiping him. We're worshiping him. And we, we no longer become people who turn in on ourselves thinking, oh my goodness, like, we're going to run out. We're not a people of scarcity, but we're a people who live out of abundance. And it just so happened that Jesus Christ says the life that he's come to give us is actually a life of abundance. And so often we're going, where's my blessings? God has given us more than enough blessings. He's given us everything that pertains to godliness. And what Timothy says is in that godliness and contentment, we're all right. We're all right. So there should not be um, overconsumption on one hand where we're just trying to stuff and fill ourselves and finding our identity in what we have or we don't have, right? And on the, on the opposite side, we shouldn't be driven by guilt in such a way that we can't even enjoy it. Just think about that for a second. I was driving down the street and I was thinking, if I'm guilty about the stuff that I have, and you don't have it, nobody's enjoying it. <laughs> nobody's enjoying it. As opposed to if I can enjoy and be thankful for what God has had, and I can invite my nephews into my house and say, yeah, go ahead. If you want to sleep on them stairs, sleep on them stairs. <laughs> right? You can slide down them and everything you want to do in my house. Right? That the Lord himself has provided. Amen? All right. So here's my question for you guys. You guys got about 92 seconds. Um, uh, with the material blessings you have received, do you lean towards guilt or gratitude, right? With the material blessings that you've received, do you lead towards guilt or gratitude? We'll do that for about a couple of minutes here, and then we'll have at least 10, 15 minutes for uh, Q&A.